Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. There is no bigger supporter of the Wine for Normal People podcast than Wine Access. Next time you're shopping for wine, hop on wineaccess.com slash WFMP to check out the wines that I'm really loving or join the wine club. Even better. Six bottles, 150 bucks, four times a year, all hand selected by me. Wineaccess.com slash normal. This is a really special podcast because for the first time in 13 years, yes, our 13-year anniversary is this week when we release the first Wine for Normal People podcast. I won't listen to the early episodes, as I said, in episode 500, but many of you do, and I love you for it. But Lindsay Miller, who will be introduced shortly, is a brave person. She came on the show. She did a great job talking about her knowledge and her love of Greek wine. I think you're really going to relate to the show. This is someone who knows a lot, but also knows what it's like to be a normal person shopping for wine. And as part of the patron community, Lindsay has been spectacular, as have so many of you. If you would like to join the community, it is patreon.com slash wine for normal people. I can't think of a more appropriate show for me to do patron shout outs to our new patrons than this one. So I'm going to do that. And then we will get to the content of the show. So Bob K, Ayana M, Jacqueline M, Mark M, J.C., Park, Jennifer F., David W., Lena, Christina B., Alice C., Mark S., Doug S., Annie P., Fadul O., Travis C., Larissa, Caitlin G., John M., Rodrigo C., Melissa K., Shannon L., Leah, John C., and Justin J. Thank you all so much. And thanks to everyone who has joined the patron community, which keeps us going. More benefits are coming this year. So check it out and join today. And one of the benefits, not only would you get to be on episodes, get to be on special videos that are for the patron community if you're a patron and get to come to private events that I hold, but you also get the opportunity to establish a really, really great relationship with me and the other patrons and do stuff like this. So without further ado, here is Lindsay. Lindsay, I know you're listening to this. Thank you so much. You did a great job. I am just so grateful to you for being the first. It's so fitting since you've been a listener for so, so long and have been such an active part of the community, and I just adore you. So thanks a ton to Lindsay. I hope everybody else is raising a glass to her as they're listening or raising a coffee mug if you're listening in the car. (laughs) And let's get to the show. We have a different show today and one that I hope will be the first of many. Today we have Lindsay Miller. Now, Lindsay is a patron. A lot of you probably know her from the classes or from being on the Patreon page. And if you don't know her from that, then you know her from the Patreon meetup in Denver, which we had last year. Lindsay and I have had a relationship for a long time. And about, what was it, about a year ago, maybe not even a year ago, she wrote to me and said, I have this unbelievable passion for Greek wine. And she really showed her knowledge and passion for this topic. And we have been trying to figure out how we were going to do this show. And I... I'm really excited to have you, Lindsay. So I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your day job if you want. And then tell us about your passion for Greek wine, because I hope that we can 
have other people on who have deep knowledge and passion about a subject in wine like you do. Tell us about you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honestly really honored (laughs) to be the first patron and also to be on this show with you. I think it's, I don't know, maybe 10 years that I've listened to Wine for Normal People. Um, Amazing. I just wait for every episode. So this is just really exciting for me. So I'm really honored. And thank you for having me. Well, you're the best. I adore you. So this is not your job. You're not, you don't tell us about your day job, if you don't mind. My day job is working in an art museum. So I do think that there are some things that align with loving wine and working in a museum. There are a lot of things around culture and history and beauty and all of those things. So in a way, it kind of does work together very beautifully. You must have loved the podcasts with Antonio Cabaldo and Pietro Mascherbardino because we talked a lot about the intersection of art and wine. There's so much. It's so interesting and really how wine can be its own art form as well. So yeah, it it does work. Tell us about how you wound up developing a passion for Greek wine, because it's this strange corner of the world. Certainly, it's old world wine. Certainly, it is something where we understand that the Greeks had such an important role to play. And it was so important in terms of shaping the Romans, who then eventually wound up shaping the entire old world and then essentially the entire universe of wine. But there's been so much that's happened in Greece that it has wound up falling off the map in many ways. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what's so fascinating about it. But my love for Greek wine, really, it's kind of a two-part situation. I fell in love with Greece itself in 2004, but I uh, studied abroad in Athens at that time. And I didn't even know I was going to go there. At first thought I was going to go to Nepal. And my dad was like, no, you can't go there. (laughs) Um, And he said something like, you know, I've always wanted to go to Greece. And I had an interest in archaeology at the time. And I'm like, well, duh, why didn't I think of this first? So I ended up going there. And it was just an immediate love, you know, when you're traveling and you go to a place and you are there and you're just immediately like, I adore this place that's how I felt. And I was in Athens in a neighborhood and, you know, it was on the street, the same street as the Panathenaic Stadium. It's right there. And so it's this old ancient history right down the street from you that you are facing every day. (laughs) There's something that I'm so in awe about that. Maybe it's just realizing, you know, how old the world is. (laughs) Maybe not comparatively. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But, you know, it really just puts things into perspective. And it's amazing that so many monuments were able to last. And the city is so beautiful. It's also funny to be there. And we look at this stuff and we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, the beauty and the craftsmanship and the fact that this is the cradle of where Western civilization really started. And then we come back here and you realize, wow, we didn't do things the same way. There's such a distinction between the two places and they walk around every day and see that stuff and they just take it for granted. It's just what they see, like how we look at our some of our less attractive buildings. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's really kind of humbling just to be next to those amazing monuments and the Acropolis and everything just right there. 
So I, I, that's when I really fell in love with it as a place, just the city. And, you know, we were able to travel around and go to other places like Crete and Santorini and all of those places. And then after that experience, I loved it so much. And I became one of those obsessed abroad person. And I know that was very annoying, but it was who I was. And um, I tried to find a way to get back. And so my university was connected with the University of Cincinnati that has an archaeological program in a town called Pilos, which is on the western coast of the Peloponnese. And it's just like the most stunning town that I've ever been to. It's so beautiful. It's small, but it's really gorgeous on the water. And I worked at an archaeological museum there for two summers in a row. Wow. I was working with ancient Bronze Age fragments from the Palace of Nestor. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Cleaning fresco fragments. We had to number them. And so we were putting gesso on the backs of the fragments and then giving them numbers, basically cataloging them. But it was a really amazing experience. And that stuff is super old. (laughs) So it's just like, wow, I'm actually touching this. It made me even more in love with the place and the culture. How is your Greek? I would say that at that time and then again in 2018, I was intermediate because I was studying and I could get by and I could have a basic conversation and most importantly, order food and wine um, and navigate. (laughs) But now I haven't been practicing as much. So it's back to being like more basic I still hop on Duolingo and try to brush up every now and then, but I just, you know, with the way life is, I don't have time to take a proper Greek class right now. And it, you really do need to be immersed. It has to be a little bit hard because where you are in Colorado, there are probably fewer Greeks. If you were in Queens, you could find somebody to meet up with in a second. How did you tie what you were doing with wine? So I have to admit that Although I have done study on Greek wine and I think it's so interesting, I don't feel like, I mean, I don't know how much wine Greeks drink. Is Mm -hmm. it beyond Retsina? What's in their daily bread? In other countries, especially in their own wine regions, they clearly drink a lot of wine. But when people talk about Greece and visiting Greece, and when I visited Greece, it was a lot of ouzo. It was a lot of, you know, it was different things, not necessarily the wine. And frankly, I had been warned about Retsina. So when I went there many years ago, I had it once and that was quite enough. It's an experience. Oh, Um, it is. Yeah. To tie it into wine, first of all, at the museum I was working at in Pilos, some of the fragments were from wine vessels. That was very interesting to see that it's also tied to, you know, 3000 years ago, people were making wine and storing it and transporting it. And so that was one way. But at the time, I was also really young. I wasn't properly into wine as I am now. So I wasn't really thinking about it. But what I noticed at the time was that you're right about ouzo. So that's something that people will drink in the afternoon with their meze. And that's kind of an afternoon type of drink. And then wine was just on the table at dinner. And it was always in carafes. So it wasn't like bottles. And if you did go to a restaurant and granted, I wasn't going to fancy restaurants. It wasn't like there's a bottle list. It's like, do you want white or red? And those are the choices and they come out in a carafe and then, you know, you have the little glasses. So that's what I noticed. And then in the grocery stores, they sold it in these giant barrels and you would get an empty liter container, like a water bottle type of thing. And you just fill her up right from the barrel. And I think that that probably costs two euro. And so that was the wine you would be buying 
I was buying from grocery stores. Again, I wasn't super sophisticated at the time. I'm sure you could find other bottles, but I just wasn't seeing it or noticing it. You know, I don't know if you could, though, because this was about 20 years ago, right? Yeah. And so if we look at the evolution of Greek wine 20 years ago, it just wasn't there. So, yeah, you would have had to look pretty hard to find bottles. You certainly wouldn't find things from Crete in the Peloponnese. You wouldn't find anything that was outside of the region. So I think where you were, that's probably where everybody else was too. I also think that although the Italian and French wine culture has shifted quite a bit towards bottled wines, they also were doing that. Maybe not 20 years ago, but maybe 25 years ago. So Greece has been a little bit slower in the evolution. And in the prior podcast that MC Ice and I did on the history of Greece, we talked about that. And I think it is an important thing to note. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with Greek wine, but it is important to have a historical perspective and know the truth, which is that at one point it wasn't that big. And that point was when you were there. So you have really been there with the culture. At what point did you decide... I am now really interested in Greek wine. Well, I would say that you're a part of it because it was when I really started to get into wine. I was like binge listening all of your past catalog of episodes and really throwing myself into learning about it. And then over time, I think I gained a pretty good knowledge of wine and became more sophisticated on the topic. And at that point, I still concurrently loved Greece and was planning a trip to go back for the first time. And so my husband and I went back in 2018. And at that point is when I kind of had this aha moment of noticing the difference. There were bottles in restaurants. There was a bottle list. They were naming the actual wines. It wasn't just white or red. The waiters were recommending different bottles. There was just so much more of a love for it. And also they were recommending Greek wines. It wasn't international grapes. Sometimes international grapes would be blended in. But for the most part, I think they retook a pride in their indigenous grapes and growing them and sharing them with people. And that's when I noticed. And they also had wine bars now and It was just so different from when I was there before. And when I came back after that trip, I was so impressed and so excited because I'm like, oh, now I can try to find Greek wines here and see what I can find. It was still a little bit slim pickings in the stores, but they did have a couple on the shelf that I could buy and it made me want to seek them out online too. So that's kind of when I really started in earnest to to look for Greek wines. Well, I think what's interesting is that at first it be it was just Greek restaurants. So the Greek restaurants were just following whatever the trends were in Greece. I remember going to Greek restaurants many, many years ago, and they literally only had carafes of red and white. They would follow that tradition too, right? Yes. Then they started to carry a couple of things here and there. You'd see a Yorgitiko, you'd see Moscofilero, and then you started to see that these lists were growing. I don't know that I ever put it together why this was happening. I thought maybe the U.S. was becoming more sophisticated, so we were able to have these Greek wines. The problem still exists, though, that it is under the radar. Yeah, it's absolutely under the radar. And a lot of that is the language can be difficult on the labels in an American market. I've noticed, interestingly, that 
producers have started to kind of switch their labels to more English-friendly labels rather than having them in Greek, which is really interesting. So I don't know if that's going to change things or if that's going to make people want to buy them more, but it might just be a way of saying, hey, we want you to buy these too. And this is a way that they're easier to understand for an English-speaking market. I think so. I, I have to say that even I, as a wine person, look at them now and feel like they're a lot friendlier. It looks like other labels that I can access. And if it has Greek on the back, I don't mind. But on the front, it can be difficult, right? I mean, if you don't know Greek characters, which most people don't, you can't even identify what the grape is. And so that can be really difficult when you're trying to buy wines. I think it's very smart of them to change the strategy in that way. Another point that you had brought up is about where do you even find them? Because the wine shops don't know where to put them. Sometimes they'll have three bottles of Greek wine. You have to sometimes go to these specialty stores. What I have found, at least near me, is that even good wine shops just don't have good Greek selections. But you know who does is the markets. So if you go to like a Mediterranean market, they're going to have some really great stuff or you got to order it online. Yes, that's exactly right. And I actually just went to our local Greek market last weekend and I hadn't been there in a while. And I was really impressed because I don't know, maybe it was a year or so ago that I was there. And in that year, they have so many more Greek wines. They have a whole section and they were actually very helpful, very knowledgeable on those wines. So I was really appreciative of that. And then contrast that to in my local liquor store, I was taking pictures. Actually, I'll have to share them with you, but we can put them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Of the shelves. And it's like, okay, here's the Eastern European section. And it's just all was Greece in the Eastern European yes. section. Greece isn't even in Eastern Europe. East, that's this general section. And then they had like right next to each other on the same shelf between two Greek wines was like a, a formant. And then they had something else from, I don't remember where, but it's just like all a jumble. It's such a jumble. And I'm like, not everyone is going to be an expert in this topic, but at least have some sort of organization system for these wines. It would be better off being with wines of the Mediterranean. You would put it with Italian wines, or if you had yeah. something from Croatia, you would put that together because they're all in the Mediterranean basins. Yes. It is hard, though. I do understand from the wine shop owner's perspective, where are yeah. you going to put them? But I do think they should, even if they only have three wines, just a little row of yeah. these are our Greek selections. Right. Just put them next to each other. And at the a separate store is in Denver as well. I won't call them out. They had them next to Mexican wines. And I thought that, that was like, they're like, here's just all the outliers. I'm like, I wouldn't even know how to find these. I just, I was shocked. That is bad marketing. Why even carry those wines if you're not going to give them a proper chance? Right. And it it makes it impossible for anyone to find them. It, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a little bit nuts. I'm not going to lie. I mentioned it at the beginning, but I will say with the patrons who collectively are our number one supporters, Wine Access helps keep this podcast going. If you love the show and you shop for wine and you love wine, you should check out Wine Access if you haven't already. Go to wineaccess.com slash 
normal, you can join my wine club, $150 for six spectacular bottles that I hand select, I do the videos for, I write the notes for, and I work with the sourcing team at Wine Access. They are incredibly selective about who they let in through the doors. All the wines are spectacular. I hear that over and over again. I didn't just make that up. I hear from people how much they adore Wine Access, how great the customer service is, and how high quality the products are. This is a team of people who care about what they do. They care about the people on the other end of the bottle, both you and the producer, and they do their best to connect you with the best producers in the industry. You get 10% off your first order. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal or go to wineaccess.com slash WFNP for the page of wines that I really like. Either way, that will get you into the website and let Wine Access know that you heard about them through this show. Once you get onto their email list and once you start seeing their offers, you will really be impressed. These are class A wines and they're hard to get anywhere else, especially at the prices that they offer. Wine A-C-C-E-S-S dot com slash normal or wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Get 10% off your first order. Now let's get back to Lindsay and hear her advice for shopping for Greek wines, which is one of the most valuable things that we all can learn. I certainly have learned a lot from her and I think you will too. Do you think that retsina is a problem still? I think it's a stigma. Do you think people even know what it is anymore? Because I don't know if younger people, and I'm older than you, we did know about Retsina. You knew about Retsina. But I, I don't know if younger people even know what the heck it is. Maybe we shouldn't even tell them. <laughs> um, maybe they don't know what it is by name. But I think the stigma is still there of like the pine saw wine, the pine wine from Greece. It, that's why it's bad. I do think that there might still be that going around or they don't know about it. I don't know. Well, it's like Riesling. People still have that stigma in the back of their head that Riesling is sweet. Exactly. And I will say in the past few years, I have tasted much more mild Retsinas that don't have that really punch you in the face pine taste, but it's more just like a touch. And right. it's interesting. So I do think that they're interesting to try. I don't think that it's something that I'm going to seek out frequently at all, but I do think it's an interesting thing to try. So maybe if you are traveling there and they have it, you can just try it for yourself and just see <laughs> what, what the what the fuss is all about. But in the past, the reason that it tastes like resin is because they were using that as a sealant. Right. For all the vessels. Right. It was a very functional thing. And now they don't have to do that anymore. So... You're being very nice, though, because they didn't have to do that for a really long time. But then people acquired that taste <laughs> for it and then they wanted it. So although it originally started out as a functional thing, it wound up being something that people got used to. But it's like anything else. Wine is fashionable. It's either fashionable or not fashionable. And this happened to be fashionable at the time. All right. So people ask me stuff like this all the time. So now I'm going to turn the tables on you and say, let's say that I'm somebody who's never tried Greek wine, didn't know anything about it until last week's show. And now you have convinced me and I have zero clue what to try, what to look for, and how would I even get turned on to this stuff? First of all, it depends on if you are going to go to a shop or if you're going to if you're going to seek it out online. But I would just recommend trying to go to your local shop to start with and see what they have. Chances are they probably have an Ayoritico, which is a great place to start. 
And that's a, you know, by now, after listening to the previous podcast, that's a red from Nemea. Or they'll probably have a Xeno Mavro. And those are really lovely. I think that that's a really great place to start. They are very high acid reds, kind of floral, really cherry, really lovely. So I think that that would be a great one to start with for reds. And then for whites, I love Moscofiloro, but you really have to like floral aromatic whites to get on that train. But I love them because they just really can transport me to the place. And they they do have that floral note that makes me feel like I'm under the bougainvillea and on the coast and sitting at a table with all the snacks that I love and just looking out at the sea. And so for me, it's very mental too, of just transporting me to this place. But they also have a nice zest of citrus. They're very refreshing and light. So I love Moscofilaro. So that's another one that you'll probably be able to find. And then Assyrtico. I know that we talked about, we don't want to talk too much about Assyrtico, but... Well, it is a great wine. It used to be a little bit more under the radar, but I love Assyrtico because... Again, same thing with the transporting me to a place. It is just like your cliffside and you're drinking this lovely lemon wine with like sea salt brininess and texture to it. And it is so good with seafood. So I would also recommend if you haven't tried a Sirtico to try them because it is basically Santorini in a bottle. I know that there are Sirticos from other places too now, but- Well, those are the ones that are now becoming more affordable, which is good. I think it's good that more people are looking into it. It's not a grape that can only do well in Santorini, but Santorini definitely is the pinnacle of it for sure. Because they've got soil types that no one else has. I mean, there was that gigantic volcano, so- I think that's a good start. So there's reds and there's whites. There's even some sparkling, too, that you could try to get. They're a little bit harder to find, but I think that's a good start. So you are somebody who drinks Greek wine on a regular basis. So I would love for you to pick a couple of regions and just tell us some stories about these regions and about your passion and why people should know about them. That's something that you can spread, <laughs> spread the love of Greek wine and get people excited about it. I would start with Crete, honestly. And I think Crete is a region. It's one of the first places that really developed a culture around wine. And we know that from archaeological evidence from the Minoan era. <laughs> so again, going all the way back. So Crete is a largest island in Greece, the southernmost, and it's the fifth largest in the Mediterranean. And I've started to find a few more Cretan bottles on the shelves, which is really cool. I think they are investing in branding a lot more and really trying to improve. And this has been going on for like the past 10 to 15 years where they're really trying to revamp their wine industry. So I really like Vidiano. And that's the sweetheart white grape in Crete. It's, so that one's that one that you might be able to find on the shelves. And there's one that I find here. It's from Dulufakis. So you might be able to find that. They also have a red. I believe it's Liatico. And that one's lovely too. And they're affordable. So Liatico is the grape, right? Yes. Liatico is the red grape. So those are two from Crete that I think are really good. You'll also find red wines from Crete that are blended. So it would be maybe a, an indigenous grape, but they're blending it with Syrah, uh, a 
common blend that I see is Cozifali and Syrah. I believe that Cozifali is a little bit of a lighter red. And so the Syrah is bringing some more body and oomph to that blend. So those are cool blends to try also from Crete. Would you characterize the Crete wines as things that have some island notes to them? What's the difference between wines of Crete versus wines of the mainland? Since it's so big, it doesn't necessarily have to have an island influence. We look at Sicily and it has none, basically. <laughs> but Right. Yeah. Crete is very mountainous. It's basically the center of the island. It's like a spine of mountains that goes through the island. It's also very rugged. It's very brush and bramble. And I almost think of like French Garrigue, but Greek or Cretan Garrigue notes to it. So it's funny because when you were talking about blending it with Syrah, I was thinking, I wonder if it's like a Cote de Rhone. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, to me, I think it has some similarities. It is kind of that deep, inky, rosemary-ish notes to it. I would classify it as a more mountainous wine than the island influences like you were saying yeah so we've got crete we have a a red and a white where else would you steer us macedonia oh yeah that's northern greece so that's going to be where you're going to find the xenomavro and they call that the king of greek reds and for a reason it really is high quality a few of the regions are exclusively devoted to xenomavro so nausa and then also amindeo is the other region. It is, and it's delicious. It's so good. I actually just had a sparkling Xenomabro from, I think, Amindale. It was so stunning. They're so light, and it was a refreshing cherry, strawberry, sparkling rosé that kind of knocked my socks off. That was a fun one to try. Great acidity in those wines, in the wines from Macedonia. Yeah, really good acidity. I think you have to try Xenomavro from Macedonia, just to know what it is about. And it's going to be one that you'll be able to find. Probably my favorite. I really like the wines from NASA. Really good. The ones that I see most commonly are from Alpha Estate. I think that might be the largest producer in the area. Yes, they've been around a really long time. They had a lot of money early on. But in Greece, a larger producer doesn't necessarily mean poor quality. No, because they're the ones that have the money to invest in newer technology. So it's not a bad thing. Absolutely. And the other one that I've been able to find pretty regularly is from Kiriani. So those are two of the the wineries that you should be able to find pretty well distributed throughout the U.S., I think. I agree. Are we going to say Santorini? I guess we have to at least mention it. I wasn't going to go there, but I will put it on the list because it is the Assyrtico from Santorini is the place. It is literally the place. It's bush trained or Kulura. So they're trained in these wreath shaped vines low to the ground and the ground is volcanic soil. So the vines are absorbing all of the nutrients from the volcanic soil and they're protected from the wind because it's essentially a giant cliff jutting out of the ocean. (laughs) And so the winds are crazy high and the, the daytime heat is really hot. And so they're all protected under the leaves of the way that they train these vines. And then at night, the sea mist comes in and it is on the vines and it absorbs into the vines and the grapes and everything. And so there really is a true brininess to these wines. And it it just feels like it is literally of the place. So when I drink a Sirtico from Santorini, I feel like I'm on vacation. <laughs> and 
the high acidity and the citrus and the the brininess, all of it just makes for a beautiful white wine. I'll agree with that with a caveat that as Estartico has become more popular and there have been more producers that have exported, not all is created equal. But all the prices are equal. Yeah. All the prices are equal because Santorini is small and these producers don't create that much wine. And so they do charge a lot of money, but not all of it is great. So just make sure you do your homework because there is a difference between the producers in Santorini. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And we can't necessarily tell you what you're going to find because not all of them are available everywhere. I think what's the... um, Santos. Or Santos, Santos. And they used to be really great, and I think they've fallen off a little bit, but they're still better than some of the others that I've taken a chance on a few and not been so happy about that. Yeah, agreed. And if you can find the Santo Assyrtico, and that's the only thing you can find, I still think it's worth trying. The price of that wine has increased at least $10 in the past five years. So I have a hard time buying it now, but it well, is- Well, it's, it's over $30 yeah, now. yeah. It used to be 20 bucks. Yeah, it's it's gotten a lot more expensive. But the the last place I wanted to mention is my favorite, which is the Peloponnese. <laughs> I, I can't not mention the Peloponnese. The uh, amazing most, wines. Most of them that you'll find are from Nemea. And again, this is going to be the white is the Moscofilero and the red is the Ayoritico. For me, Moscofilero is really a special wine. It's actually a pink skinned grape. You can also make a rosé of Moscofilero, which I've had those before too, which are really interesting to try. This region is also very mountainous, so it does have good diurnals, so it has that great acidity. And that would be my number one recommendation, a region that's really special to me. It's it's so stunningly beautiful. And so again, these wines really just are intermixed for me with the place and memories and wanting to go back. And so it's this full circle thing when I drink these wines that makes me love them even more. Well, can you talk a little bit about the Ayoritico, which I know I didn't say right. How do you, how do you say it? Ayoritico. Ayoritico. Adios means saint. And then the second part means George. And by the way, that has appeared on bottles of... yes. Your Yituko as well that I've seen. Scorus, that brand recently changed from having Ayor Yituko on the label to St. George, which again, as we were talking about earlier, is really interesting. It's just kind of a shift in marketing and trying to make it more of an understandable thing for English speakers. I find Ayor Yituko to be the very approachable. It's an easy drinking red. It's nothing like Xeno Mavro. <laughs> it's much more... I know this isn't exactly the same, but it's kind of like a narrow de Avila in a way. Like to me, it goes really well. Like if you're having pizza or something like that, it's very easy drinking. And it does have some cherry notes, some some oak undertones sometimes. It's very smooth. It's not super tannic. It's something that I think is really approachable. So if you are new to Greek wine, it's a really good place to start to see what it is, see what it's all about. And then you can explore from there and see what you like. The wines of Nemea are definitely easiest to find and easiest to drink. Now, if you are someone who does not like aromatics, you cannot have Moscofilero. No. Because that is going to be like Gewürz. I mean, it's in that family of Muscat and Gewürztraminer and Riesling, Torontes. That's not going to work for you. And in that case, you should go for Assertico or there actually are a bunch of other 
white grapes. I love Malaguzia. There are lots of different things, or you could look for the Vidiano from Crete if you're looking for whites. There's so much that people can explore. I think we have given you, if you're listening to this, some good jumping off points to start the exploration. For this one, it's going to be important probably to look at the show notes and we will write down the names of the grapes and places that we mentioned. Because if you're lucky enough to live in a place like Denver or in New York or in places where there's a large Greek community, you're going to be able to find these wines. But I can say even where I live, I have to drive 45 minutes to get to the market that has the wines that I like. So normally I'm just going to order them online. And you may have to do that if it's something that you are interested in exploring, which we really do encourage you to do because you heard Lindsay's passion for these wines. It doesn't come out of nowhere. The evolution of Greek wine over the last 10 years is just stunning. It's a thrill to watch. It's great. It's nice to see them getting on their feet. It's nice to see them leading with their own grapes. It's nice to see this indigenous spirit coming through. So, Lindsay, thank you so much for being the first patron to come on the show and to educate us about Greek wines. I feel inspired. I want to go drink some Greek wine right now. People need to go outside of just the Greek restaurant, the local Greek restaurant, and actually start buying these wines and putting them into the rotation. Once you do it, you will definitely be thinking about them on a regular basis. I also think that this is a space to watch because we are only at the very beginning. Yeah, it's just going to grow. So it's a really exciting time for Greek wines. And thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun and I feel really honored. So thank you for having me as the first patron. I think you have to say goodbye in Greek. Oh, <laughs> yes, us. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 